Hello, and welcome to Can't Make This Shit Up. I'm Cassie, a true crime enthusiast. And I'm Mark, her dad, a true crime professional, retired traffic homicide detective from South Florida. And we hope you guys enjoy. So... We left off last week talking about the murder of Tina Fontaine in Winnipeg, Canada. When we left off, Tina had been sort of, once she kind of hit her teen years and her father passed away, she sort of started a downward spiral that just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And finally, her aunt, who she'd been living with, had repeatedly asked CFS for assistance and was denied it many, many times. And finally, her aunt told CFS, listen, I can't have custody of her anymore because her activities and her actions are affecting her siblings. So as a result, Tina was once again placed into the custody of CFS. So that's where we left off. Yeah, which I was thinking about that when we recorded the last one. It happens in my experience too, like with the child services system down where I used to work. It always like, I don't want to say it angered me, but as a government service or as a government entity, if you're going to have this office or this program in place, like, you know, there was called DCF, Department of Children and Families. And I understand being overcrowded or too many, you know, not enough workers to, I, I understand all of that, but you have to be able to provide all the services that are necessary or required to help the child, the family or whatever, because like in this instance, I was thinking about how sad it was that the aunt who's trying her hardest, right? Her and her husband, they take in the two kids. And And they don't, they already are, you know, a a poor family and they don't have the the resources to do everything that they wish they could do, you know, even though they, they're doing their best. Right. And, and then just for, for that agency, to just drop the ball so many times. And really it's, you do blame the agency, but it, generally it's the workers or the, you know, like the case workers, whoever, they're the ones that are dropping the ball, but you know, you have supervisors and there's a chain of command where the entire entity is responsible because there has to be a system of, you know, checks and balances or whatever to make sure that everybody's doing what they need to do. And I know that mistakes will be made and we're all human and stuff like that. But in this case, it's just, and we're not talking about, this is, you know, a long time ago. This is 10 years ago. Yeah, right. 15 years ago that this is happening. And again, I understand like lack of funding, lack of workers, things of that nature and stuff. But this clearly was an issue from, from the birth of her mother. From the birth of her grandparents. Grand, yeah, well, yes. If, yeah, if you want to go back that far, but where this child services you know, it kind of comes into play. It never worked. Right. They never did the right thing. Right. So it wasn't like they started off doing well and then just, you know, kind of let, let it go or what they failed from day one. Right. Which to me is like, it's just that kind of stuff is like, it's hard to change any of that stuff. And that's the frustrating part about it. But to hear these type of stories and where you have people like if the aunt and the uncle didn't care, you know, then, then fuck it, I get it. She's stuck in this system. But when you had people that cared and tried to make a difference and asked for help and it was refused or just ignored or whatever, to me, that's worse than, than doing nothing at all. If you like, you're not having anybody, you know what I'm saying? And even having the girl saying she needs counseling, that's a big admission. Like for people to realize that 
they need to talk to somebody or whatever. Like we've talked about mental health. On this. Yeah. And, and then they send her somewhere that's miles away that they know the family can't get to. It's right. like, are you fucking for real? <laughs> right. Right. So that whole, that whole thing, I was thinking about it. I was just like, that's, uh, it's crazy to me that that type of shit happens in this modern, modern age, in this modern world that we live in. But you know, the world is fucking crazy right now. So I guess it's just par for the course, but. Well, and I think that the problem with, I mean, obviously in Canada, it's CFS in different places, it's called different things. But I think that across the board in every country, even the more developed ones like us, Canada, you know, England, I feel like they all have issues with their their yeah. version of the CFS system. It's always shitty in every country, no matter how rich the country is, no matter what. And we should really be focusing on children, raising them to be you know, good people. And, you know, we, they're going to be our future leaders and our future, you know, like they're our future essentially. And we keep failing. One, what I find especially sad about this case with Tina is who knows what Tina could have become if she had been given the opportunities from the very beginning. It's really sad that it's, it's like she, and don't get me wrong, there's a lot of people who are born into the same circumstance and they're able to overcome and, and you know, make something really great of themselves. And that's great. But I do think that yeah, it's really they're sad. That's, they're anomalies. That's and a, and I just think it's sad because it's it's not from, she wasn't going through all of this stuff as a result of her personal failings. It was because right. the system failed her from the beginning. She never had a loving family until her aunt, but by that point she was already 10 years old, you know? And I think that those, well, I know for a fact, because I have a, d a degree in education, that the your early years are the most formative years for your brain. So if you're b in this sort of situation, it really is very, very, very difficult to overcome that because your brain has basically essentially been wired up to that point to you're in fight or flight your whole life so if your basic needs aren't being met at home then you you don't stand a chance in school you don't stand a chance doing anything in society nothing yeah nothing trying to keep friendships relationships because everybody that you've trusted or have been forced to be with that's supposed to care for you and love you has failed you so how and you abandoned ever, you and abandoned you so how do you well, and that's why I especially felt bad for Tina when her aunt finally returned her to see at fast custody, because I think I understand why she was forced to make that decision, because she does have another child at home that she has to keep safe. But it's just it's just hard because it once again reinforces that I'm getting abandoned once again. Right. And and unfortunately, I mean, I've I've encountered that also in my career. I've literally have told parents that have had these I like. I used to respond to houses where the kids would run away over and over and over again. And I'd write missing persons reports over and over again. And I finally would tell the parents, listen, you know, I don't know how you make this decision, but they do have the ability to go to the court, petition the court to take the children into custody, into like state custody, because there is a point where you can't do no more, especially as they get older, when they become 14, 15, 16, you know. Yeah, because what are you supposed to do? Chain them to a wall? Right. They're you know. Adults and. And in a lot of cases, the parents, whether it was a grandparent or the mother or whatever, who was doing it by themselves, the, you know, if it was a son who was way bigger than them, they were in fear because the, you know, they were acting out and, you know, it was like, you oh, he's going to, you know, kick my ass or whatever. So I, you know, I understand the necessity of it, but when the system fails from the get go, where if there's somebody's trying to 
to prevent that from happening or you start at an early age and you can catch it and maybe make a difference and it's, you know, the, the ability to do it is not there or it's failed or, you know, just ignored. That's to me where, you know, the, the system is fucked up and, you know, these children like Tina in particular, they don't have a chance in hell and being a minority, you know, and it happens in minority classes. I'm sure it happens with not minority classes too, but you know, people that are low income and stuff like that. It's just one extra layer of struggle that they have to face. Absolutely. Absolutely. Agreed. So Tina, if you remember from the end of last week's episode, Tina had been found drunk on the street with her 18 year old boyfriend who was pulling her along the street and he was arrested and she was taken to that detox center. Right. So the detox center is the ones who contacted her aunt who then said, listen, I can't take her anymore. Right. So Tina was discharged from the detox center on the afternoon of July 17th. And she was, and this is in 2014. Right. And she was picked up by a CFS worker who once again placed Tina in a local motel until other accommodations could become available. So this motel thing is going to strike up again and again. It's the most fucking ridiculous thing I've ever heard, but. Yeah, I've never heard that before in my life, but. However, the following day on July 18th, the CFS worker was told that Tina had run away in the middle of the night from this hotel. Yeah. Hello. There's very little supervision. Yeah. And she's 15 now. So like I said, you start getting into that age, that young adult age. You're like, fuck this. I'm out. And. And honestly, I don't blame her. Who wants to stay in some shitty motel? Right, right. So as a result of her running away, CFS contacted both Tina's mother and her aunt, who both assured CFS workers that they had not seen Tina. As a result, Tina was once again officially reported missing to Winnipeg police. Later, on July 22nd, four days after Tina had gone missing... She called her assigned CFS worker from her mother's cell phone. She told the worker that she was staying with her mother and her mother's boyfriend and was safe. The worker informed Tina that she needed to come into the CFS office as she could not stay with her mother permanently and needed an acceptable placement. Tina agreed to meet her CFS worker at her office the following day. Here's my problem. Why wouldn't that worker get off their fucking ass and go to where she is and pick her up? Why are you leaving it up to her to A, find transportation? You know she doesn't have a car. She's 15. You couldn't get off your ass and go pick her up? Right. Especially when you already have it in your records of what her mother is like, doing drugs, sex trafficking her, hitting her, abusing her. It's like, dude, you're just like, oh, just make your way in when you can. Right. Yeah. Instead of sending the police or somebody like, you know, or going yourself or... Right. That's... So I'm saying the whole system is is fucking whacked. Right. You know? And it's that person, he or she, failed in that moment. Right. By not acting. So... That's what's so sad about this case to me is there's so many moments where if just one person would have given a shit, things could have ended up a hundred times differently. And... Every single turn and every single time, people let Tina down. And it gets worse as we go on. Even we'll see later, the police let her down. Right. Well, the flip side to that is, is you do have workers that care and that are unfortunately overworked and overburdened with cases and not enough time, not enough resources. And at some point, they finally say, fuck it. Right. They see the person who's sitting next to them earning the same paycheck doing probably 95% less than they're doing, 
You get frustrated. And, and I'm sure that that paycheck is not great. <laughs> no. Especially so, considering all they have to deal with. Yeah. So it's like, you know, I get it. They, they break. Yeah. You, you become a broken employee and you either quit or you just continue to, you know, take the paycheck and do what you can. And I, I mean, I, I see both sides of it. It's right. It's it's an imperfect system for sure. But, you know, it's frustrating when you when you're looking at it from the outside, you know, naturally. You know, One, especially it. when it involves kids, you know. Once kids, yeah, right. That's why I say a, a, a nation's number one focus should be children. I agree. You know, and their well-being and their education and their, everything that goes with that. But unfortunately, it's not. So, On July 23rd, Tina showed up to the CFS office as she promised, but she was not alone. She brought her 18-year-old boyfriend with her. So that's the same boyfriend that was seen dragging Tina down the street. Oh, great. Okay. She admitted to her caseworker that she and her boyfriend were sexually active. And when asked about her drug use, she also admitted that she had, in fact, done crack with her mother three weeks earlier and that she partook in drugs and alcohol quite frequently. So the one thing I will say about Tina is, so there's records of all of this because the caseworkers keep records, right? But... Tina is so super honest with her caseworker, and it's crazy to me because most kids I feel like would lie. I feel like it was her calling out for help. I think she was saying, look, this is what I'm doing, and I don't want to be doing it. Help me. And every time, nobody fucking does anything. Right. Or she was just giving zero fucks because she'd been failed so many times. Right. Like maybe at 15, she'd already established that mentality of like, Fuck it, I'm going to tell you. What are you going to do to me? Yeah, which, and I don't blame put her. Put me in a hotel. <laughs> put me in a hotel. Put me in jail. Put me, what are you going to do? Right. So. So during this meeting, she reportedly told her caseworker of talking about her mother. She said, quote, I like her. She's cool. I think she's funny. And she tells me cool stories about her life. Her mom's a piece of shit. But to be fair, her mom was also failed by the system. Yeah. So imagine a 15-year-old girl who's lost and whatever. And here's your mom, this, you know, your mother's telling you these cool stories. Oh, I, one time I traveled across Canada and went to this concert and did this drug and blah. Yeah, right. It's cool to her. Like, okay. And she's funny and whatever. However, despite her affinity for her mother, when asked by her caseworker who she'd like to live with, Tina indicated that she wished to move back in with her aunt, who she referred to as her grandmother, remember? So it's interesting that even though she's like, yeah, I love my mom, when asked, she was like, oh, no, I don't want to live with her, though. Because children require stability. Right. And, and normalcy and routine. And she probably got that with her aunt as best as she could provide it. But. So the CFS worker informed Tina that she would do what she could to facilitate her moving back in with her aunt. And in the meantime, she placed Tina in a temporary youth shelter as there was no other accommodations available at the time. So Tina remained at the youth center for only one day. And on July 26, she took off yet again. I'm sure you're so shocked. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I mean. I wouldn't want to be in a youth center. Like, I get it. Yeah. The staff at the shelter filed a missing persons report the following day on July 27th and informed CFS that Tina was once again missing. The missing persons report filed stated that Tina was not high risk, which is a lie. <laughs> okay. That Tina was not a chronic runaway, 
That's also a lie. <laughs> that they suspected she left on foot or by bus, which that was probably true, obviously. Mm-hmm. That she had a history of suicidal ideations and attempts. That was true because, remember, she had cut herself that time. Right. And that she was known to use drugs, mainly cannabis and alcohol, which that's only partially true. She's admitted she's using crack and all this other stuff. Right. The day after Tina was reported missing, she returned back to the youth shelter, but only stayed for one hour before once again running away. The day after that, on July 28th, Tina returned to the shelter a third time, and at this point, employees there canceled her missing persons report. Following Tina's return, she was informed by employees that if she continued to come and go as she pleased, she would lose her placement in the youth shelter. However, Tina did not seem to care and answered that she'd spent her time away in Jigtown. So Jigtown, it's kind of a nickname for the northwest portion of Winnipeg. And it's known to kind of be a rundown and dangerous part of town. And a lot of Aboriginal citizens live in that area. So she probably knew, okay. you know, knew a lot of people there. Okay. Tina also stated to employees that she planned to return to Jigtown that evening and would never return to the shelter again. Tina held true to her promise and once again ran away from the shelter that evening. Once again on July 31st, Tina was reported missing to the Winnipeg police. So she's had numerous missing persons report. That's why I thought it was funny that the last one they said, oh, she's not a regular runaway. I'm like, yes, she is. Well, you know, (laughs) in those houses, like there was one that was in my area where I used to work when I patrolled the road and they would get, literally, they would place a child there. And they would have a three ring binder. And so when they ran away, it was like, we need their information, their social security. Now. They would open it up and they were lucky if they had a page or two of information, like of that information or what their issues were. They would be placed with no information for the care workers at that Are house. you fucking kidding me? That's no. wild. It's, it's like, because of, especially if it was like a, a quick placement or like an emergency placement, they wouldn't get the information for sometimes several days or... A week and which is so horrible because how are you supposed to help that help that kid or assist that kid if you have no information about anything? That's that's part of the problem. It's like that's the system when it fails. Meanwhile, Tina's aunt called Tina's caseworker and informed her that nude photos of Tina were making their rounds on social media. The caseworker informed her aunt that Tina was missing and advised her to call the Winnipeg police and inform them of the photos. However, it appears that Tina's aunt did not do as the caseworker suggested and never called the Winnipeg police in regard to the photos. Uh However, thankfully, Tina's caseworker did report the photos to the police on her own. But strangely, when police investigated these claims, they never found any nude photos of Tina on the Internet or on any social media site. So it's unclear why Tina's aunt was under that impression, but they never found anything along those lines. Yeah, I mean, depending, well, I'm not a computer expert or, you know, by any means, but depending on what platform maybe they were being distributed on or. Right. Or how she knew that information, if it was actually true or she, somebody just told her that. Right. So Tina's boyfriend and mother were both contacted in an attempt to locate Tina. Tina's boyfriend claimed he had not seen her recently and Tina's mother's cell phone was turned off so they couldn't get a hold of her. Okay. Finally, on August 1st, Tina was located once again as she returned to the youth shelter, once again with her 18-year-old boyfriend. However, upon her arrival, she was told that her placement there had been rescinded and the shelter was now full. 
Tina informed employees there that she'd been staying with her uncle during the days that she'd been missing. So this isn't the uncle that she lived with. Previously, this is a different uncle. Okay. And employees informed Tina to come back later that evening as there may be a bed available by that time. They also reported this exchange to Tina's CFS worker. However, Winnipeg police were not notified she'd been seen and her missing persons report remained active. Okay. Later that day, Tina's CFS worker arrived at Tina's boyfriend's home looking for her, but she and her boyfriend were no longer at the house. However, Tina's boyfriend's father informed her caseworker that the pair had stayed there the previous evening. He promised the caseworker that if Tina were to return, that he would ask her to check in with CFS. Next, Tina's CFS worker attempted to call Tina's mother again, but at this point, her cell phone had been completely disconnected, and no one knew where she was physically or otherwise. No one knew a way to get a hold of her. Right, okay. She also attempted to phone Tina's aunt, but Tina's aunt's phone was also disconnected. Hmm. The following day on August 2nd, Tina finally did once again contact her CFS worker. She explained to her case manager that she'd been staying with her boyfriend and claimed that she no longer wished to stay at shelters and wanted instead to be placed, quote, somewhere where she feels like it's home. Okay. Which is so sad to me. Yeah, she's she's reaching her wits end probably with the bouncing around. Or... Oh, yeah, because imagine if you yeah. never knew where you were going to sleep the next night. Yeah. Despite her wishes, Tina's caseworker informed her that there were no foster placements available at that time, but that she had secured Tina another placement at a second youth shelter for the time being. However, Tina failed to show up to that shelter that day. But instead, Tina showed up to the shelter the following day on August 3rd, but once again, her placement had been given away. Instead of contacting Tina's caseworker themselves, as they should have done, employees at the shelter told Tina to find a way to contact her caseworker on her own and have her caseworker arrange another placement. Unsurprisingly, Tina never did that. Of course not. What a- <laughs> so once again, failed. Yeah, see, there's just, yeah, there's too many, there's too many failures and too many people involved in... <laughs> it's, it's really disheartening because it's like left and right, everybody. Yeah, yeah. It's the whole system. It's like, whether it's frustration or a lack of care or in- incompetence or whatever, it's, it's, it's across, it's in the entire system. So two days later on August 5th, Tina's CFS worker contacted the shelter to check on Tina and was informed that Tina had never shown up. So they never even contacted her worker to let her know that Tina hadn't shown up. As a result, CFS employees drove to a building where Tina had been rumored to be staying. However, they could not gain entry to the building as it was locked and the speaker system was broken. Instead of calling police to assist them in gaining entry to the building, they simply left without locating Tina. (laughs) So, failure number 182. Yeah. Jesus. The following day, on August 6, 2014, Tina's CFS worker attempted to call an uncle of Tina's, who Tina had stayed with previously. However, the worker was unable to get in touch with him. She also contacted the Winnipeg police and informed them of all of the addresses where Tina had been rumored to be. But infuriatingly, whichever officer took that report did not record any of the addresses that they were given and never added any of this to Tina's missing persons report. There you go. And don't get me wrong, this isn't the first time the police fuck up, too. No, yeah, I'm sure. 
But whoever that cop was, what a piece of shit. You couldn't have taken two seconds to add some addresses to her report. Like, fuck you. <laughs> You'll be amazed how many officers are lazy. Just don't the, give a shit. So. There is also zero evidence that Winnipeg police made any effort to locate Tina in the days since she'd been reported missing. So according to their files, they literally did nothing. Right. She's a chronic runaway. Right. So I think they just wrote it off as like, fuck that. It happened where I worked. It, you go to the same houses and you know these people and it's the same kids over and over again. And you know they're going to come back in a day or two or whatever. And then, you know, so I hate to say it, but that's the reality of the situation. Two days later on August 8th at 2.30 a.m., Tina once again showed up to the youth shelter along with a female friend in search of a bed for the night. This time, Tina showed up with a swollen lip and scratches all over her knees. But strangely, when Tina arrived, she told shelter employees that her name was Tessa Gumund and that she lived with her mother, who had left her alone in their home for the past week. She also stated that she'd had no experience with CFS in the past. So basically, she's giving them an alias. Okay. When asked, she informed the employees that she'd received her injuries from tripping over a skateboard. However, when Tina's friend was interviewed by the shelter staff privately, she quickly informed them that her friend had lied to them and that she was in actuality Tina Fontaine. So she was quick to be like, no, nah, no, nah, she's lying. Right. She also informed them that she'd witnessed Tina smoke weed, which had been laced with cocaine. What a rat that friend was. <laughs> mm-hmm. she, she spilled the beans real quick. She, she like cracked under the pressure. As a result, the shelter workers contacted the CFS after hours line. A CFS employee informed them that they had no bulletins regarding Tina. But remember, she'd been reporting reported missing, right? Of course, yes. Sir. As it turned out, Tina's caseworker had never updated the Child and Family Services application system to show that Tina was missing. Repeat offender. So, failure number 985. 985. <laughs> As a result, neither the CFS employee or the shelter employee contacted the Winnipeg police, and neither were made aware that Tina had ever been reported missing. Tina continued to deny who she was, and she and her friend left the shelter approximately an hour after they'd arrived at 3.30 a.m. Two hours later at 5.15 a.m., so this is where you're going to get mad because this is where police really fucked up. Oh, all right. So she just left the shelter at 3.30 a.m. At 5.15 a.m., Winnipeg police pull over a vehicle. The driver had failed to use proper signals. Upon approaching the vehicle, police encountered a male driver who was clearly intoxicated and a young female inside. The female informed police that her name was Tessa Tuhart, but... Under more questioning, she later admitted that she was a minor and her real name was Tina Fontaine. The man admitted that he did not know Tina and that he had been, quote, looking for a girl to go out with after he'd gotten into a fight with his girlfriend. Amazingly, the two officers failed to look up Tina within their system and therefore never realized she was a missing person. Even more amazingly, despite her being a minor, they admittedly did not ask her if she'd been sexually exploited by the driver, although he basically admitted to it. Right. And they allowed her to leave the scene without attempting to contact CFS or her parents, actions which clearly went against Winnipeg police policy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it was probably the end of their shift. 
And they're like, I'm not staying over. And fuck that. If that was my kid, ooh, I would have, those police would have not been happy. Happened. Thankfully, these two idiot police officers were later fired from the police force as a result of this incident. Oh, really? Yep. Wow, okay. Because had they done what they were supposed to do, she would have most likely never been murdered. Gotcha, okay. Five hours after being pulled over by police, at approximately 10 a.m., two individuals were walking along the University of Winnipeg campus and came across Tina, who was lying unconscious in a back alley, which was a known area frequented by sex workers. They were unable to wake Tina and called university security. When security arrived, they also were unable to wake Tina and noted that she was, quote, not fully clothed from the waist down. The security officers immediately called 911 and paramedics arrived to the scene. At this point, paramedics were finally able to wake Tina. They transported Tina to the hospital, and on the way, she informed them that she last remembered being with a man and consuming large amounts of alcohol, weed, and other drugs. They noted that Tina appeared confused and had blisters and burns all across her lips. Okay. Once at the hospital, Tina's CFS worker was finally contacted, and she showed up to the hospital to accompany her. So that was good. The, the one good thing. Yeah. While there, she tested positive for amphetamines, cannabinoids, and cocaine metabolite. The doctor spoke to Tina privately and asked if Tina had been sexually exploited, but Tina denied that she had been sexually active the previous evening at all. The doctor wanted to perform a gynecological exam, but Tina refused. As Tina was not severely injured and denied being sexually assaulted, she was medically discharged. At this time, Tina's CFS worker contacted Winnipeg police and informed them that she'd been located and was in the hospital. As a result, her missing persons report was once again canceled. After leaving the hospital, Tina was once again placed within a hotel until a more permanent placement could be found. Tina's CFS worker drove her to the hotel, where Tina informed her that she wanted to go meet up with some friends. The CFS worker informed Tina that she needed to stay in her hotel room and get some rest. Tina, however, did not heed this advice and told her CFS worker that she planned to leave regardless, but assured her that she would return by midnight. The CFS worker then left the hotel and left Tina in the care of a general home care worker. Unsurprisingly, Tina left the hotel shortly afterwards. That was the last time Tina was ever seen alive. The following day, on August 9th, Tina's CFS worker once again filed a missing persons report, as Tina had never returned to the hotel as she'd promised. Two days later, on August 11th, Winnipeg police received an anonymous tip via text message that they had seen Tina on Ellis Avenue on the night that Tina had left her hotel placement at around 4 a.m. So on the night she was last seen in the hotel, she was seen again at 4 a.m. by this anonymous person. Okay. They informed police that they'd seen Tina walking along the road with an unknown male. Police attempted to contact Tina's family members, but all claimed they had not seen or heard from Tina. On August 13th, police issued a media release featuring images of Tina in an effort to locate her. Following this, police received another tip concerning Tina. An anonymous caller contacted the tip line and stated that they'd seen Tina entering a house in central Winnipeg, and they believed Tina had been, quote, working the streets. It is unclear if police ever followed up on this tip. If they did, there's no record of it. Okay. 
So they never even went to the house that she was claimed to be at. Right. On August 14th, five days after Tina was last seen, CFS finally was able to locate and speak to Tina's mother. She indicated that she had not seen Tina for over two weeks and had no idea where she may be. However, she provided the worker with an address she thought Tina might be staying at. When police arrived to that address, Tina was not there. At this point, Tina's CFS worker finally began securing a warrant for Tina to be placed in a drug detox program once she was located. Yeah, that's too little too late there, pal. Yeah, exactly. Also speaking of too little too late, a Winnipeg police officer contacted a program known as Street Reach and requested that they add Tina to their limited high-risk victim list. So this program was initiated to assist high-risk street youth in receiving the help and treatment that they needed. Also, on August 14th, the Street Reach manager emailed the Winnipeg Missing Persons Unit to inform them that Tina had been added to their list. Their email stated, quote, Looking into this case, and it looks like a jurisdictional nightmare with a bunch of different agencies playing hot potato. It's your case, not ours. Bottom line is, there have been numerous concerns documented in our CFS system that this child is being exploited. We will be actively looking for her as she is a very high-risk child from what I can see from my quick look this afternoon. Outreach will start looking for her tomorrow, so if there is any information you have that I haven't got, can you please let us know and we will get on it. Wow. So it's interesting because she finally gets somebody who gives a shit, and it's too little too late. Yeah, the right agency or whatever, right right group or whatever. The following day on August 15th, police received another anonymous text message tip. This time, the tipster informed police that they'd last seen Tina on August 9th with a, quote, John. The tipster described the John as a young male in their 20s with short hair and wearing blue jeans and a vest. Sadly, two days later, on August 17th, 2014, Tina's body was discovered by a passerby in the Red River. Her body had been wrapped in a blanket and weighed down with stones. An autopsy was conducted the following day. It was noted that at the time of her death, Tina, who was 5'3", only weighed 72 pounds. Jesus. Horrible. She was, like, emaciated. Mm Mm-hmm. Due to the advanced level of decomposition, the medical examiner was unable to determine a cause of death. Tina tested positive for ethyl alcohol and cannabis, but it is unclear how much was in her system as the levels can vary based on decomposition. So, Right. Right. That's just the, the byproduct of, of alcohol consumption. It's like what's in your, it's in your system. They can tell that it's in your system, but they can't get a reading sometimes because of that. Right, because I guess your body will form the alcohol just through decomposition. So it's impossible to know what's a result of decomposition and what's a result of what she actually drank. Correct. As a result, Tina's death was listed as, quote, highly suspicious, but undetermined. No one was immediately charged with Tina's death, and it was uncertain what occurred after she left her hotel placement. However, despite this, Tina's death sparked outrage within Canada and globally, as many felt Tina was let down again and again by police and the CFS system. And as a result, many changes within the CFS and police systems in Canada have taken place. Ultimately, Tina was laid to rest on Sagkeen First Nation beside her father. However, a year later, in December of 2015, police finally arrested a man named Raymond Cormier, 
I'm not sure if it's Cormier or Cormier. Okay. And charged him with second-degree murder in relation to Tina's death. Tina and Raymond had known each other for several years and were known to hang out together occasionally. During Raymond's trial, a witness testified that she'd witnessed he and Tina arguing over a bicycle frame which he'd stolen from Tina and sold to buy drugs. Prosecutors also presented the blanket which Tina had been wrapped in, and witnesses claimed that they'd seen Raymond purchase that blanket at a local Costco. However, due to the level of decomposition, no concrete evidence was ever uncovered, and the case relied entirely on circumstantial evidence. As a result, Raymond was acquitted of Tina's murder in February of 2018, and to this day, no one has been held accountable for Tina's death. Wow. Winnipeg CFS's use of hotels as adequate placement for children was immediately called into question. In November of 2014, the Minister of Family Services announced that the province of Winnipeg would be completely overhauling their CFS system and was working to greatly reduce the number of children placed into hotels. However, a little less than a year later, in April of 2015, another female youth had been placed into a hotel and was raped by a male youth who was assigned to the same hotel. Following this incident, hotels were no longer used at all, and a rule was officially placed within the Provincial Child and Family Services Standard. It states, quote, Hotels, including motels, will not be used as placements for children by agencies of the Child and Family Services System. This applies even with respect to emergency and or temporary placements for children. No agency or authority may designate a hotel, including motels, as a place of safety. So now they're no longer allowed to do that at all. Right. Unreal. (laughs) Following Tina's death, a group known as Drag the Red was formed. This group consists of individuals who volunteer their time to search the Red River bottom for bodies or any evidence which may help solve missing persons cases. Tina's death also instigated the reemergence of a group known as the Bear Clan Patrol, which is a group of volunteers who regularly patrol Winnipeg's North End neighborhoods in an effort to, quote, promote safety, conflict resolution, and crime prevention. Additionally, the Strong-Hearted Buffalo Women's Crisis Stabilization Unit was also launched following Tina's death. This group is, quote, a semi-secure, level 5, short-term crisis intervention program for females of all nations aged 12 to 17 years old who are assessed by StreetReach as a risk of sexual exploitation. The six-bed unit program is Indigenous-led and offers a safe, nurturing, non-punitive environment for sexually exploited youth who are in crisis. Her death is also considered one of the primary cases which led to the national inquiry conducted to investigate the abnormally high number of missing and murdered Indigenous women across Canada, which, if you remember, we discussed that in our episode on the Highway of Tears. So her death was like the one that kind of sparked that. Right. Yeah. So it's kind of shitty that no one was ever held accountable, but at least some good came out of it. Right. Well, I mean, he wasn't convicted of it, but they did make an arrest. I even wonder if he really did it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because th- really, I looked at the, you know, what, what they presented in court. And it really, let's just say if I was on the jury, I would have acquitted as well. Because yeah. to me, it's not beyond a reasonable doubt. Like, I'd, I don't feel comfortable sending someone to jail for the rest of their life when I'm not positive they did it. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, he bought a, supposedly, allegedly, he bought the, the rug at Costco or whatever. Well, how many r- rugs do they sell? And he yeah. even, he denied that he had bought it, but there was, right. and they didn't have like a receipt that proved it or, or camera footage or, or anything. Video. It was only witness testimony that they were like, oh, I was right. with him when he bought it. Right. Right. So. So sad yeah. case. Sad case for sure. Well, at least some changes were made. Hopefully, you know, the system's getting better. That's all you can ever hope for, you know? But. Yeah, it's just really sad that no one was ever really punished for it. Like, whether or not the Raymond guy really did it or not, I mean, right. no one was ever held accountable. It's just sad because, you know, yeah. at, like I said, at every turn, she was let down. Yep, 100%. So, we do have a question. righty. This question is from Jennifer. Howdy, Jennifer. Hi, Jennifer. So, once again, I wanted to end with kind of a fun question because this is depressing content this week. Yeah. Yeah. So, Jennifer asked, why the heck have you been pepper sprayed so often? (laughs) (laughs) Well, because it started off when I was in the Army. And, you know, you get exposed to chemical agents as the CS gas for your training, your chemical agent training. But also in the police department, every year you have to go for certification for crowd control or, you know, riot. We used to call it field force training and they would expose us because we still use chemical agents or tear gas or CS gas when dealing with, you know, crowd control and stuff like that. We have to be exposed to it to show that we can still function being exposed to it. Like you can still fight through the, the, the pain and the, and the burning and stuff and still be somewhat effective or at least defend yourself. So that's, and you know, 27 years in the police department, pretty much Every year I got a taste of it. So it's just. Were you ever accidentally sprayed? Like like caught in the crossfire or something? No, we don't carry like the road patrol doesn't carry pepper spray. We had tasers and I've been tased accidentally several times. Yes. While taking subjects into custody and stuff. So would you say in your opinion, is it worse to be tased or pepper sprayed? I'd rather be pepper sprayed. So you're telling me I, I should really invest in a taser then? They fucking work. And they fucking hurt. <laughs> you know those handheld, not the ones that shoot the barbs, but like the handheld ones? Yeah. Are those good or like, nah? No, they just piss people off. Okay, so that's not worth my time. If you're going to get one, you need the one that, that, that expels the projectile. They actually have a civilian version. And like, if you hit somebody with it, you're just supposed to drop it. And it goes for 10 seconds so that you have a chance to run away. And Oh, it's on like a timer. Oh, yeah. each Like even our even the ones that the police use, are five, each trigger pulls five seconds. But you can like turn it off before that. But if you just pull the trigger and let it go, it's five seconds. The civilian version is 10 seconds. And the idea, the training or idea behind it is that if you're being attacked and you can tase the person, you hit them and you just drop it and you have 10 seconds, they're going to be incapacitated for 10 seconds and you can run away. But what the taser works on, the electricity works on your nervous system. And essentially what it does is all it does is like locks up your, your muscles. And basically, you know, if you ever like flex your muscle, like when your bicep gets real tight, yeah. It's like that, but your entire body between the two prongs or the two points of contact, that whole, that muscle group from point to point is just locked up, which is why normally most of the time you see people fall because their muscles seize up and they no longer have control of it. But the minute it's off, the pain is gone. Like it's instantaneous. The pain is gone and they're still fighting. That's why we're, we train to take people into custody while that, which is why I've gotten, we call it getting bit, trying to cuff somebody while the cycle is going 
And if you get within the, tri you know, there's a, like a triangle, I don't want to get too technical, but sometimes you touch the person in between that and you get, you get bit. So that's, you know. It's Dang. That's not fun. And even that one second bite is, uh, no, thank you. Well, Jennifer, I hope that answered your question. Yeah. It's I not that I wanted to, it's just, <laughs> it's, you know, that ne necessary evil part of the job type of. And now, you know, invest in a taser and not pepper spray. Yeah. Yep. So. All right. Well, another one bites the dust, as they say. But it um bump, bump. Yes, it does. Another one bites the dust. Bites so if you will follow us on our social media, that'd be great. Yes, please. We have a pretty cool little community going on in our social media accounts. People are always posting fun stuff in there and talking yeah. about the cases and stuff. So it's it's a fun little group. And we're always thankful for the new listeners that give us a, a shout out and tell us they just found us and they binged, listen, the whole series and stuff, which is always, you know, exciting to me that, you know, people find, find us and enjoy uh, our content. So thank you for all your new listeners. Yeah. Anyone who's a new listener, reach out because we like to say, hey. Yeah. And to all the old listeners, thanks for the continued support. Absolutely. As always. So our Facebook group is Can't Make This Shit Up, a true crime podcast. Our Instagram is Can't Make This Shit Up pod. And our Twitter is CMTSU pod. And then if you want to make a case suggestion or ask a question, which we always love, then you can email us at Can't Make This Shit Up pod at gmail.com. Or if you just want to reach out and say, hey. Hey. Oh, also, there'll be a link in the show notes to submit questions and case suggestions as well. So if you want to do it that way. Absolutely. But until next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.